Christ listened to his voice and they followed him. Christ's servant declares the voice of God. And uh, I believe that as I stand before you, you will not just be listening to the Son of God speaking, but I'll try to be very faithful to the scriptures, which is the voice of God. Therefore, I hope that by the end of it, you will say, I want to follow the voice of God. For the ministry of his Amen? Amen. Let's turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans 
It's a very intelligent book. It's not easy to understand it. It is a book that Paul really strains your brain. He gets your brain thinking. From chapter 1 to the end of it, chapter 16. And uh, he is taking you by the hand, reasoning, logic upon logic, and it is sustained logic that if you follow Paul carefully, you end the book by saying, Praise be to God, I'm a sinner. May he save me, may he save me by grace. And there's great doctrines of salvation in the entire book. You can find all the doctrines that pertain to salvation from this glorious book, the Apostle wrote. For the interest of our topic today, Dead to Sin, chapter 6 is fitting. And when I was given the topic and the passage, it was like the officials did half of my job and they said I'll do the remaining half since they have just pointed me to the right passage that addresses the topic. But you agree with me that as I'm saying that Paul sustains his argument chapter by chapter. Chapter 6, therefore, is not alone. There is a reason why it is where it is. If you check with me in chapter 3, Apostle Paul has been discussing the topic of justification, being saved or being made right with God by faith alone. When he comes to chapter 5, just later in chapter 6, he presents what you can say, the result or the fruit of what has been discussing from chapter 1, 2, 3 and part of 4. He presents in chapter 5 the result or the fruit of this justification. And this is why I started by saying Romans, you have to understand it chapter by chapter because they are interconnected. It flows. Chapter 3, going onwards, justification. Come to chapter 5. Now let us look at the results of, or the fruits of justification. And it presents, when it comes to chapter 5, if you combine chapter 5 and chapter 6, he gives you, call it two fruits, or, or results of justification. In chapter 5, the fruit of justification is peace with God and of course with one another and he delves on that so deeply and if we live appreciating that justification truly has brought peace between me and God we who are ones at war with God the benefit of justification is that there is reconciliation and there is peace between you and God the second benefit of justification that he brings to your attention, you faithful reader of this book, is in chapter 6. Justification 
reserved for holiness. Holiness. Therefore, as he discusses the second truth of justification, which is holiness, a practical issue arises that he had to deal with and address also in chapter 6. The issue had started lingering in the previous chapters. And when it comes to chapter 6, he says, now let's rest here and let's deal with this issue. What is the issue that's been lingering? If you care, look at chapter 5, verse 20 to 21. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see how that statement then transitions into chapter 6. It's a factual statement. Now the law came into in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see what he's trying to say there is where sin abounds. Grace abounds even more. Then you look at chapter 3 again. There's something of the sort coming up. Chapter 3, verse 8. And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In other words, from arguing about the fruits of justification, some people are saying, okay, let us do evil even the more. Paul passes that quickly. He passes it quickly in chapter 5. Then when you come to chapter 6, he delves into that argument, kind of facing those who are saying this squarely. Justification has fruit of peace and gives us the fruit of holy living. It demands for holiness. It demands that we live for the glory of God when you are justified. So it is not a license, therefore, to sin as these people are trying to counter Paul's theology. Paul says in chapter 6, that is not what I'm saying. Yes, grace will abound. We are sin abounds. But is that a license, therefore, for us to see more that the glory of God in the way he expresses his grace may be seen? Are we going to help God to pour out his grace even the more? by sinning even the more. Paul argues against that philosophy. 
and he argues that Genesis strongly in chapter 6. And uh, as we open it up, the portion that we want to look at this evening is just number one argument against that case. Against that false philosophy. When you come to verse 15, he gives you second argument against that philosophy that people should sin more so that the grace of God may abound. But we don't have time to look at the second argument. The first one is what we are interested in today. Because the second argument is that consider your master. Now that you are a Christian, who is your master? He's no longer the devil, you have a greater master. And he agrees on that line. And the first argument is that you have been justified. You have been removed from sin and love of sin. Now live for Christ. So they come and counter Paul. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? No, it's like we love the doctrine of Paul. We love to hear Paul preaching that we have freedom to sin so that grace may be shown even more. So it's like that celebration, that relating over their misconception of what Paul is saying. But before they celebrate that false doctrine further, Paul drops the bomb in their midst. And the bomb is in verse 2. He says, by no means. That is not what I'm saying. By no means. After saying, by no means, stopping their celebration, he goes further on now to defend the by no means. Before we proceed, this was a real problem in the apostolic time. Not only Paul dealt with it, but Peter dealt with it, Jude dealt with it, this philosophy of sin more so that grace may abound more. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter uh, as he writes to uh, his recipients in chapter, chapter 3 in 2 Peter, if we can follow Peter's mind there as well as he writes uh, chapter 3 verse 16. Let's read from verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You see, the argument of Peter there is that, yes, I agree that understanding Paul sometimes is hard, 
But that is not an excuse to start twisting his teaching. That you, you start following wrong things because you are twisting Paul's teaching. And you are twisting Paul's teaching in the light of what Paul is also addressing in chapter 6. That Paul is saying that they should sin the more so that the grace of God may abound. And as Peter writes to these recipients, I believe it's the same people that Jude is also addressing in Jude 4. And in Jude 4, listening to that, Jude puts it even much more clear. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation and godly people who pervert the grace of our law over God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You see, again, Jude addresses the same fellows that bring problem to Paul in chapter 6. That perverting the grace of God as a license to indulge in sin. You see, the danger of distorting scriptures, and I'm afraid many today do distort the Holy Book. The danger of distorting the Holy Book, God's Word, is that it leads to wrong practice of our faith. Because we are meant to obey the Holy Book, but if it is taught wrongly, it will be applied wrongly, and people will live their lives in an unholy way, thinking that they are obeying the voice of God. And so Paul says, that is not the way you should go, having been justified. So in verse 2, by no means, uh, how can we who died to sin still live in it? The part that talks about dead to sin sometimes can be complicated to understand. How do we die to sin? Let me put it in a simple way. There was a time when I, son, was aligned to football game and OGC football. I was aligned to that. But now I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. There was a time I would go to bed sleeping and dreaming football, knowing all the fixtures, following the table so keenly. I was a slave to it. I was alive to football. But now I'm dead to it. We used to run around the streets singing God my name and waving. And if you are a referee, you dare not rule against God my that is no longer me. I'm dead to that. I'm alive to other things. 
and that is Christ. There was a time, as a young man, I was alive, oh Jesus, of young people, oh Jesus of the youth, I was alive to that. I was alive to drinking, I was alive to humanization, I was alive to all these discordances. I will tell when the next discordance will be and where. I will follow them. I knew all the DJs in my village. I was alive to that. But a time came, I became desperate. So dead that today, even if disco is playing across my friends, I'd rather go and tell them, shut up, I want to sleep. I'm dead to that. I used to be alive. So what does being dead to sin mean and being alive in Christ mean? Simple. The things you do, used to do, you do them no more and you should do them no more. You are dead. They are no longer appealing. They are not making sense to you. Because you are a new person. The old is gone and the new has come. These things no longer appeal to you. They don't make sense to you. You wonder why people spend on them. But you become alive in Christ. You want to sing hallelujah, you want to join the saints, you want to be where people are worshipping God and shunning sin for that matter. In the book of Ephesians, Paul talks of it in a different way. He says that now that you are a new creation, you must push off the old deeds and put on the new ones as a Christian. And so, verse 1, some people are saying they should continue to sing. Verse 2, no, that's not the way to go. And after dropping that bomb, shocking them, you should not go that way. The rest of the chapter is actually written in supportive of verse 2. The logic behind what he's saying in verse 2 is now expounded why you should not live like that. Number 1. We have a personal, personal relationship with Christ. Personal. And that is what he says from verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life, dead to sin. New life has made you alive. And the logic is that you are now united to Christ. Many of you here who are Christians, you know the commands of the Great Commission 
Bring them in and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. That is what he's looking at here. When we baptize, we symbolize something that has happened to you. We take you down the water. See that as a grave. And see that as symbolizing the sin that Christ carried upon him on your behalf, buried with Christ in that grave of water. And so all your sins are put on Christ and you go down with him. You symbolize that in the waters of baptism. And then you come out of that water, symbolizing a new person, a new person. And so in that, you are displaying what happened to Christ on your behalf, who was buried and resurrected, triumphant over sin. As you come out of the waters of baptism, what you are displaying to the people who are present is that Christ has made me triumphant over sin. And I want to be for him. And that's what you symbolize even as it's shown in verse 5. The newness of life. And therefore the argument there is that all your sins have been taken care of by Christ who went into that cave, came out triumphant. You can be spiritually like that. You see, I would encourage all Christians, and I always do this, especially the ones who just come to faith on the day of baptism. Treat it as your birthday. Where you invite people, do your baptism cards, inviting the people you used to sing with to that baptism day. Let them be witnesses that you are dead to sin now. They should not come around bothering you anymore. Let them see that you have come out of that water, a new person, not the one that they used to know. And therefore you are drawing a line and you are showing them you are no more on their side. You are on the side of Christ and his people. So as the apostle sustains this argument, he goes on, we were, so we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The argument there is that justification demands holiness. Justification demands newness of life. Where does this newness of life come from? It comes from the fact that you are united to a holy God, Jesus Christ. You know, when Paul argues against 
the church in Corinth, excelling in sexual immorality, he tells them it is abominable to find Christians going to sleep with prostitutes. And he says, don't you know when you go to these ladies, you are taking Christ with you then. Because you are united to Christ. It's an abomination to see a Christian going to worship idols in those temples the same way it's an abomination to see a Christian uniting with a prostitute. You are taking Christ in those orgies. And it's the same argument he brings here. And Paul's theology is so consistent that what you find him saying in Galatians, he'll say it elsewhere. What he says in Ephesians will be spread over all his books. So, on the same note, then, he rebuts the argument of let us see more so that grace may abound. If you are united with Christ, it doesn't hold. Is foolishness. That is not Christianity. Therefore, verse 6, while you are still weak, sorry, um, chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we will no longer be enslaved to sin. And later on he picks that up, who is your master? You are a slave to who? He presses on so that you no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin, set free from indulging in sin. If you read the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verse 11 is very clear. It says that like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Like a Christian, who goes back to his old self. That is a fool. It's like a dog that goes back to lick its vomit. And Peter adds to that, as consistent as these apostles are in their writing. Look at what he says in chapter 2, again, of Second Peter, verse 22. Let's read from 21. For it would have been bitter, better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and so after washing herself returns to wallow in the mind. 
You see this man that says I'm a Christian. I'm a member of CU. And where is the Saturday dance show? He's packed the hall with others. That is a dog who has gone back to his vomit. He's not dead to sleep. That's a soul or a pig that has been washed clean but gone back to wallow in mud. And you see, verse 6 and 7, he's appealing to your conscience. This is why, again, I say that. You know, read Romans with your thinking cast on. Because that logic after logic. But since that seven, he is appealing to your reasonable ability that you may see the folly of that argument in verse 1. And it's so clear for he who cares to listen. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin that was crucified with Christ might be brought to nothing, brought to death, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So, for one who has died has been set free from sin. In other words, sin has no power over him. But you see, you can sit there and say, ah, no, is it, is it really possible to set myself free from sin? But even as a Christian, I'm still struggling with sin. Fair enough. Fair enough. But we have an example that Paul ends this argument with, and he, he wants you to see the one who holds you by his hands and walks with you through this world that is confused of sin. Yet you want to walk through that mire of sin. Christ holds you by your hands and he lifts up Christ as an example to you that you may be encouraged and know that it's possible not to live as a slave to sin. Now, if we have died in Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never, will never die. Again, I want you to follow the logic there. He will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ resurrected once and for all. It is unimaginable that he will come back a second time to die again. In the same way, you have been removed. 
removed from the clutches of sin. You are dead to that. It's unimaginable that you who has resurrected with Christ will come back to die again to sin. Just as it is impossible for Christ to come and die again, so it should be impossible for you to come back to be in the clutches of sin, dead in your trespasses. Have you ever had a person who claims to be a Christian and he says, I saw Christ, he has come, but he died again. Of all the heresies that I know, I've never had one like that. Will you not come to the right Is that with sin once and for all? He has helped you to deal with sin. He has justified you once and for all. Just like he has defeated sin and resurrected once and for all. As it is impossible for Christ to come back and die again, it should be impossible for a Christian to come back to live a life of sin and enjoy it for that matter. So you see then the sustained argument against that philosophy of grace may abound where sin abounds. He follows it with not at all. Look at Christ and his life and the fact that you are united to Christ. Having run through that, and I pray that you follow that difficult yet easy argument all the way against that wrong philosophy of our faith in terms of sin abounds wherever it is abounds. The apostle comes to a logical conclusion, therefore, as we end the passage of today. Having said all that, if you are following me, then he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. That's a command. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. If you used to steal, your hand was aiding you as an instrument for unrighteousness. And in Ephesians it says, stop stealing. Work so that you may also share with others. It should no longer be an instrument for unrighteousness. Stop it. If it was your feet that was carrying you to the orgies of disco and drinking, it should no longer be an instrument that carries you to where unrighteousness is being practiced. How does the Lord Jesus Christ put it? 
If it is your right eye that causes you to sin, what should you do? Cut it off. Discipline it by the help of the Spirit. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instrument for righteousness. I'm no longer using these hands to, 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 to throw stones against our football opponents who've beaten us. I'm using it to carry the Bible now and preach to you. It's now an instrument of righteousness. It's no longer engaged as an instrument of unrighteousness. I'm no longer using my mouth to sing and dance to those vile music. I'm using my mouth as an instrument to praise God. Hallelujah, the Lord Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm using it as an instrument righteousness. This is what he wants you to appreciate. When we are still young and people are truly getting saved, we saw people getting saved and selling their radios.
Another thing that is rampant with young people, especially think this thing called Facebook has increased it. You want to pause as if you are living large. You see somebody's Mercedes Benz? No, you pause. As if that is now yours.
gospel. And so to you, basically it's about how we live our lives as Christians. I urge you, flee like Joseph did from orgies of young people and turn to God and truly believe in him that he can keep you pure. I know also that as we are in this room, probably quite a number of you are not believers. And many a times, as I witness to young people, one thing that they raise up is, I would like to be a Christian, but it's impossible to live as a Christian. I don't want to cheat God. I was once witnessing a friend of mine who was studying to be a lawyer those days. And he's now a very successful lawyer. And a judge for that matter. And he told me, you know what, son? Thanks for witnessing to me. But I cannot be a Christian because when I become a Christian, the avenue of polygamy will be closed on me. But I would like to be a polygamous man. So that those fears, when we are told about the love of Jesus Christ that is able to wash away your sins and to keep you until the day of glorification is presented to you, the enemy brings that fear and says, who is he, man? Don't lie to yourself, who is he? I want to encourage you this evening. Christianity is the best faith. Is the Lord who saves you and keeps you. Is Jesus Christ who calls you and keeps you. He prayed to the Father and said, Lord, not even one that you gave me have I lost, except that who was predestined to get lost. And the security of things is true. So don't let the enemy magnify this mountain of holy living and then he say, it is impossible. I can't live for God. I love life. We used to love life. Apostle Paul used to love life. The family of Jesus Christ used to love life. But the Lord made them and saved them and kept them and will meet them in glory. Trust in the Lord, He can save you and keep you. Cry to Him, Woe unto me who is alive to sin. See my life and love of sin that condemns me. Help me, Lord. Help my unbelief that I may believe in you that you can take away my sin. Save me and keep me to the day of glorification that I may join with the rest in seeing Jesus Christ who died for your people. I urge you, Monsieur Gopin, Mungaleza Kuokoa, 
tunifadhi bila tunifadhi If I tell you how long I've been a Christian, your jaws will drop down in wonder. Because I don't think there's anybody in this room who was born by the time I became a believer. And if you have the privilege of looking at my life before I became a believer, Ungesema, we are lazy. But those years down the line, the Lord has said. He can save you and keep you. That these demands of holiness will be seen in you day after day. May the Lord help us. Those who are believers, let's live for God. Those who are not believing, trust in Him. He can save you and keep you. Hallelujah. Amen. May the Lord bless you. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Your word is true. Your word is sharper than two double-edged swords. Your word, Lord, penetrates the hearts of men, opening them up, laying there before their own eyes. You help me, Lord, to bring this truth to your people. May you now follow it in the power of the Holy Spirit to apportion it to each and every one here according to the need that you perceive in their lives. Not to those who need to be saved, save them, Lord. May they not go out of this place without being convinced that they need to change. Those who are believers and are struggling with sin, oh Lord, they give them the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome those struggles. We trust in you. Hear our prayers. Honor the preaching of tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.